The glorious Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Children going off to their various Sunday school classes, so we'll continue with our time of worship as we open the scriptures. We've got a short chapter today, the third chapter of Jonah. And uh, God willing, next week we will finish this series with chapter 4. Five messages will be taken. And, uh, but today we will look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 and commencing at verse 1 of the prophet of Jonah. This is what the word of the Lord said. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Verse 4, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his house and laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes. And he issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on the God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Trust the Lord will add his blessing uh, to his word. Last week we left Jonah safe and no doubt traumatised a little bit on a beach and also without doubt being a little bleached after spending three days and nights in the fish's belly. And as we've gone through this narrative of Jonah so far, it's been miracle after miracle as we have traced God pursuing this reluctant missionary. Because that's what he has been. We saw first of all that God sent a storm, then God calmed that storm, and then God converts pagan sailors and then God appoints a great fish and he commands that same beast to vomit up Jonah on dry land so in all this miraculous Jonah does get the message it seems he gets the message God is on his case and like a hound from heaven God in grace and mercy brings Jonah to repentance and faith and hope in the Lord again that's what we've looked at so far. We learnt that God will go to, to extreme lengths, if he so wishes, to bring about his purposes through his servants. 
He will even discipline, and we have this from Hebrews, those whom he loves to bring us into line if we do not heed his word of grace. So all this miraculous has been happening in order to bring Jonah to the exact place where the Lord wants him. After all, God is sovereign and in charge, right? And now Jonah hears the word of the Lord a second time. And so here we see Jonah's commission renewed in verse is 1 and 2. His commission is renewed. And this is worthy of our consideration this morning because it teaches us that God is merciful, he's patient, he's long-suffering toward us, and he's gracious towards us, in that he often, and I'm going to using this word in a good sense, he often gives his people second chances, can I say that? Especially to those who have failed and, obey, and disobeyed him. And I would suggest that we all fall into that category, right? He is merciful in that he so often calls in grace again and again and again. Let's have a little pause there. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, it may be that you have heard the gospel over and over and over And here you are this morning being confronted with its claims again. Confronted with God's claims again to obey him with your personal faith and repentance toward God. Or it may be that as a believer God has called you to obey him in some specific area or way, but like Jonah you have snubbed and you are continuing to snub his call in whatever area of life that may be. And here you are again this morning being confronted with God's call to obey him again. We need to understand that God chooses whom and when and for how long he will extend his mercy. Because I said before, he is sovereign, right? So we need to think that this may be his last call to you, whoever you might be. This is why Paul, by the way, Apostle Paul, pleaded with the Corinthian church and those who were gathered there with these reluctant believers. He says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.2 He saw the urgency of obeying God when he calls. But back to Jonah. I asked the question, if you were God, which you cannot will be and never will be, but if you were God, how would you have treated this man, Jonah? Can I suggest that most likely it would be something like this? Well, Jonah, I'm really glad you're on track. But one bad strike, really, and you're out. And you're out, Jonah. Folks, God is not like that. In his grace and mercy, he often gives people who have rebelled against his word second chances. And he does this with his poor beached and bleached prophet. But repentant Jonah, this is what he does. 
because we read, then the, Lord of the, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. But please note here that this commission, this recommission he received was the same as the first. You see that? Exactly the same as the first. You see, the Lord often chooses to go the second round with many of his recalcitrant people. He does. Think of Abraham, that great man of the Old Testament. He was an idol worshipper. He was a, a living example of, of one whom God called in pure grace. He was no better than any of his other countrymen. He was an idol worshipper, a pagan. He wasn't a good guy and had done a few good things and so God looked down upon him and called him. No, no, no. He was just a pagan idol worshipper living in the land of Ur. And God called him. He received God's call while living in those circumstances in that country. And he says, Abraham, I want you to leave that country and I want you to come and take up a land that I will give to you and your posterity. Amazing. And faith, Abraham obeyed God. But then, like so many of us, he stopped short. He stopped short at a place called Haran, we read that in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, by the way. He stopped short of God's call. And God came to him, you know what? He came to him a second time. Isn't that wonderful? God didn't say, one strike and you're out. No, no. He came to him a second time. And this is where we get the call of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, to leave where he was at Haran and go on to the land of promise. Same is true of Moses, by the way. Remember Moses brought up in Pharaoh's court, there nursed by his mother, and he learned all the things about the children of Israel. And he understood from an early age God's call upon his life to be the man who God would use to deliver Israel. So what did Moses do? I know what. I've got to earn some street cred here. I'll go out and kill an Egyptian. Well, he probably didn't think that, but that's what he did. He killed an Egyptian thinking it would earn him some street cred and so then the people would follow him. But instead what happened? Fear gripped him and he fled to Midian. Forty years later, God called him a second time. Go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people Israel out of Egypt. Same happened to the Apostle Peter, for another example from Scripture. Peter boasted, remember, Lord, I will never deny you. Never deny you. I will never desert you. Luke twenty-two thirty-three. But Jesus went on to say and to reveal to Peter himself, he says, you are going to deny me three times before the morning. And sure enough, he did. Surely our reckoning on this case would be one misstrike is bad enough. But for you, Peter, three strikes you're out definitely, right? You're sinbin forever, we might say. But how did the Lord respond? You know the story. On three occasions, and for each occasion that Peter denied him, the Lord evaluated his heart's devotion toward him. Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Three times. Peter responds to each of those three times, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus confronts Peter a second time and commissions him, Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. 
Dear people of God, the Lord comes to you again this morning. Especially if you have been detained somewhat or been sidetracked and stopped in your heran. And who amongst us dare says that that has never happened to us? We all have our own plans, don't we? We run with our own plans. And and somewhere or other, we all have denied the Lord, like Peter. And like Jonah, we have even ran from the presence of the Lord. We all have in some way or other. But does God cast us off? Does he sin in us and disown us? No. He disciplines those whom he loves. He can do that. True. But more so, he confronts us like he is doing this morning again and again and again. He calls us. He recommissions us to service. What for? to those good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in Him or in them. Ephesians 2 verse 10. That's what He recommissions us to. And this is exactly what God does to Jonah. This is exactly what He does. But I want you to note something else here in verse 2. We see that Jonah ran from God, but Jonah brought him right back to the mission he fled from. Okay? Brought him right back. You know, Jonah was not allowed to skip over this one. Good principle here for parenting too, by the way. You know, sometimes our kids transgress and and don't do what they should do. Especially after mum's told them to pick up all the toys and everything. And then when the kid doesn't, you'll see a little while after the mum going around and pick out. No, no, no. Take them right back to their first act of disobedience. This is what God did to Jonah. Takes them right back. This is important because too often as Christians we can think that we can sidestep or ignore or pick and choose the scriptures that suit us and continue in our own self-style Christian way. That's what we tend to do, which is wrong. came across my Facebook page the other day and uh, it was from R.C. Sproul that says, if you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you don't like, it's not the Bible believe, you believe, but yourself. And how true that is. I'll read that again. If you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you don't like, it's not the Bible you believe, but yourself. And that is so true. You see, the Lord demands, folks, he demands, and he deserves obedience. He even said through Samuel the prophet, to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And often our lives are characterized, or they are to be characterized by obedience to the Lord. And if we do not, we're putting ourselves in a situation where God will discipline us and chase us so that we face the very act of obedience that we're running from. So don't think we can skip over areas of, our, of, our, of the Lord's demands and from Scripture. Can I suggest that we yield to him now? And, because why, why would we want to test God's judgment? We don't want to do that. 
Another important lesson that we can learn from these two opening verses is found in the very specific command that Jonah is given in verse 2. If you just look at that, it says, Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You see that? Now, we know that Jonah followed this command to a T. And as a result, what happened? There occurred the greatest revival in history. And this should tell us something, right? The first call that he received in chapter 1, go cry against the city of Nineveh for their wickedness has come before me. But now it gets more specific. Still the same call, but more specific. Call out against it the message that I tell you. That's what he said here. In other words, Jonah, you preach my word, my message, my way. Now, folks, I am sure if preachers, pastors, ministers, or whoever you like to call them, understood and obeyed this imperative of preaching the word of God, the whole counsel of God, as in the scriptures, rather than substituting it for dumbed-down, seeker-friendly, ear-tickling, motivational homilies, I would suggest that the spiritual life of many of our churches would be positively different today. May we all continue to highly value the preached word of God as he has given us in the scriptures. That's pretty simple, right? This brings us to the greatest revival in history. We see verses 3 and verse 9, which takes up most of this chapter. Now, we cannot be sure of a time interval between Jonah's projectile exit onto the beach and when God spoke to him a second time. It doesn't really matter. But we do see that Jonah was obedient this time, right? He was obedient. Jonah had learned his lesson. It says in verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Folks, if you want to covet something, covet this, obedience to the Lord. Why I say this is because we are so good at trying to outguess, make excuses, blatantly ignore, and, and even twist God's truth with our modern ideologies. We're so good at that. And may even be clever with our philosophies and thinking. But let us be people who are tagged as being obedient to the Lord as he speaks to us in the scriptures. May it be said of you, and put your name here, Jeff was obedient to the Lord. John was obedient to the Lord. Brett was obedient to the Lord. Put your own name in there. What a wonderful thing to be tagged with. I wonder if you could do that right now at this moment. Well, anyway, what does Jonah do? He doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back. On the first call, Jonah disobeyed and God sent a storm, but here he obeys and God brings about the greatest revival in redemptive history. Jonah was, he was not running from the word of the Lord now, folks. No way. He was running with it. And that's the difference. When God's people take up his word and run with it, God blesses his word because it's powerful. Okay? It's powerful. We're told in Hebrews 4 and 
verse 12, the word of God is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of, of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the word of God does. It is powerful and God uses it through his servants, his faithful servants who teach it and preach it and minister it. Because, folks, whether we like it or not, it's only by the word and through the word that God opens sin-darkened hearts to repent and come to faith in him. Nothing else. You can be clever in your rhetoric. You can be clever in your presentations. We can all be that. But it's the word of God that does the work. What does Romans 10, 17 says? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So off goes Jonah. Off goes Jonah. Armed with all he needs to this exceedingly great city. You know, the size of the city is unbelievable, even in our day in in modern terms. It wasn't only its physical size, but its political importance of that whole area in its day exceeded the size of Babylon. And it was a strategic city. And we're told in chapter 4 there were 120 souls who didn't know the right hand from the left, meaning there was 120 young children, which people have estimated that would mean there's got to be about 600,000 people living in the city at the time of Jonah. A big city, even on today's standards. Including its surrounding villages, it was 32 k's long, 20 k's wide, and 100 kilometres in circumference. Archaeologists have dug up parts of the wall and seen that the wall's width was enough to take three chariots wide. A huge city. Skeptics actually have refuted the existence of Nineveh as late right up into 1849. There were suggestions earlier on, but then there were archaeological digs made in and around this area in Mosul, not far from the, the present-day Mosul, where the ISIS have control, right next to it, actually. But archaeologists discovered in their digs of these, of these ancient ruins, Sennacherib's palace. And in this palace there was a blisks telling the stories of the Assyrian invasion down to the land of Israel and even into Judah itself. If you want to go and see some of them, and I've seen some of them in the British Museum, because it was a British archaeologist that discovered all this stuff. The city was three days' walk. That's how long it took to either walk through this thing or go around it. 100 kilometres probably was around, so 30 kilometres a day plus probably would be here. But it was a big city. It was enormous. So Jonah begins his first day's tour of duty in verse 4. And he begins to preach. No doubt he stopped here and he went there and he stopped there and he went there and he stopped there. And this is what he preached. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in English, but even less in Hebrew, actually. That's the message he gave. Now, Jonah, no doubt, included a 
need to repent in order to receive God's mercy. But in the main, his message was succinctly and specifically about God's coming judgment. Now let's stop right there. I don't need to tell you of today's evangelical climate where many churches don't like preaching or will not preach about God's judgment these days. You noted that? Even sin is considered to be a dirty word and too negative and not preached about. God's judgment is deemed to be too insensitive and it scares people away. And after all, what we really need to be is to be more pragmatic, to make people feel more comfortable. We need to speak on issues that fill pews, not empty them. That's been the trend in churches for the last 20 years, by the way, probably 30 years. But God's warning of judge, God's, but, but the warning here of God's righteous judgment on unrepentant sinners is clear. And uh, when we think about that, God's message of judgment, it's a merciful message, right? It's a gracious message. It's exactly what people need. After all, if you had your neighbour, and, and during the night you were awakened and, and, and aware that their house was on fire and knew that they were asleep inside, what would you do? Ah, oh, well. I don't want to be insensitive and wake them up. No, 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 you'd go and warn them. Escape! Escape! You're about to burn. You'd do that, right? I've often said this, folks, and I'm going to say it again. To genuinely grasp by faith the good news of God's love and grace in the gospel, we need a good dose of the bad news of God's impending judgment first, right? You can't call self-righteous people to repentance because what are they going to repent of? You want people desperate, those who are confronted with their dire need of rescue from sin and death and hell. Think about Jesus' earthly ministry. Did you know that Jesus spoke more of the realities and horrors of hell than he did of the blessings of heaven? He did. He knows best, right? And so this is what God gave Jonah to proclaim. For you homiliticians out there, and I've been through its classes, no three-point sermon here that had to, class the, had to pass the um, homiletic class, no three-point sermon it seems. Imagine Jonah doing this. Use your sanctified imagination here. Imagine Jonah doing this. Uh, like I mean to say, what a man. I would love to know what was going through his mind when he first stepped into that city and was about to proclaim for the very first time, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I would have loved to know what was going through his mind. wonder what people are going to do. Are they going to laugh? Are they going to scoff at me? Are they going to ridicule? Or maybe worse. Jonah's mind could well have been working in overtime. But underneath, as we see in the next chapter, and as we go right back into chapter 1, we know the reason why Jonah didn't want to preach, right? Because he was a prejudiced man. He was a racist. He did not want God's blessing 
to go to anyone but the Jewish nation. And so underneath was probably, he was still struggling with this, even though he'd been repentant and, and the Lord had recommissioned him. But anyway, look what the response of the people were. People stopped and they listened. That's what they did. They stopped and they listened. Now, you may not be aware of it, but even in those days, even though they never have had internet or telephone, etc., uh, etc., et news travel fast. Bush Telegraph, we called it. And no doubt they had heard about this prophet, this beached and bleached prophet, and all about him and coming to town with a message from God. And uh, so here he is. People stop and listen. Businesses came to a standstill. Multitudes gathered. A deathly hush came across the streets by street and suburb by suburb. Why? Because the power of the preached word of God. The people of Nineveh believed in God. You see that? That's what's written in our text. They believed in God. That was their response. The message that Jonah preached struck home to the hearts of these street people right to the very king of Nineveh himself. Every single one of them. Think about that. 600,000 souls came to the Lord that day. That period in those three days. That's revival like never before. Pentecost. Do you think of Pentecost? That was pretty awesome, wasn't it? As you read about it in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 immediately come to the Lord. And a little bit later, 5,000. Fantastic. But 600,000? Nothing in redemptive history touches this, folks. Nothing. Not that I know of, or not that I've read of. But look at what and what they believed in. You know, they didn't believe in Jonah. Because he was merely the what? He was the messenger. He was just the messenger. He was, he was merely... Assigned to the city of Nineveh. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11 verse 30 in the, in, in the New Testament. It says, For as Jonah became assigned to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. This bleach prophet became a sign in being obedient to God. He then became a fitting instrument for proclaiming judgment. Because why? Because he had experienced the judgment of God. He was also a fitting agent to proclaim mercy because why? Because he had experienced the mercy of God. He was also a living example of what it is to disobey God and also a living example of what happens when you repent. And here he was right before them, whatever he looked like. Jonah was a living model of his message and the people heard and they saw this and they understood from Jonah that religious sinners can find mercy or rebellious sinners, I should say, can find mercy with the Lord upon their repentance. They saw and heard this. So the sign of Jonah, folks, is that God can bring good from evil, right? And the Ninevites had this living sign right before them. The sign of Jonah that Jesus speaks of was not just about Jonah being inside the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, which pictures Christ in the grave for three days and three nights. Part of it, yeah, but that's not the sign. The sign is that Jonah came out and then he was had to administer and bring blessing and offer grace and offer mercy to pagan sinners. 
It was all about the resurrection. That's what the sign of Jonah was. Is not that what our Lord Jesus did? You see, Jonah is a type of Christ. We have this from the Scriptures. Christ also suffered at the hands of God's judgment. Not because of his own sin, because he was pure and perfect. But all our sin was laid upon him. And because of that, God poured out his wrath upon him. And was buried. Died and was buried. But praise the Lord, he arose again. And what has he done? Because of his resurrection, he brings the message of grace and mercy and salvation to people like us sinners. This is what Jonah was doing. And so they had a living model, a sign right before then. So the people of Nineveh believed this God-given message. But please note that this belief in God was accompanied with something else here. It was accompanied with something else. It was accompanied with the genuineness of their belief in God and it was evidenced by their repentance, in their repentance. Okay? This is what it was accompanied, their faith was accompanied with. You see, the big miracle in the book of Jonah or in Jonah's life is not that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and lived, no. The big miracle is right here. An entire city of wicked pagans repented at the preaching of a second chance missionary. That is the greater miracle. The great miracle is not the fish. The great miracle is repentance. As I said before, from the ordinary to the king himself, the people believed and repented. It says in verse 6, And they proclaimed a fast to put on sackcloth, and they sat in ashes. Why did they do that? You know, is that what repentance is? No, no. This was just symbolic in their day of their remorse over sin. All the people, including the king, and every living thing they owned, they even involved all the animals in it. Which is quite interesting. You see the last verse of chapter 4, that God refers to the animals. They don't think that God is an anti-animal person. This is one up for the animal rights, I guess, but they repented. What they were doing by doing this was symbolizing their spiritual heartbroken brokenness before God in what they did. This was genuine repentance going down here, folks. It was, it really was. This was no hype that we often see today triggered by some persuasive celebrity evangelist or preacher where he moves and can moves thousands of people, gullible people I might say, maybe to open their pockets and fill his coffers. This was nothing like that. This was genuine repentance. This was, this was genuine faith in God proving itself in repentance towards him. What does it say? Even the king himself. It says, Upon hearing the word, issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. He even points out specifically of that terrible sin that they were known for. Violence. Isn't it interesting? You go back to Genesis 6 and what were they known for there? Violence. God sends a flood. This king on behalf of the city nailed it. 
He nailed it. In other words, by edict of the king, he publishes throughout the city uh, the very cracks of this perilous situation that they were in. And this is what he says in contemporary terms. Let's come before God and let's be humble and let's repent of our sin and maybe God will spare us. He knew he didn't deserve it. Folks, James in his epistle says this, faith without works is dead. You know that verse, right? James 2.17. And what James means by this is that faith that does not produce a repentant heart and a lifestyle is a false faith. Paul in a session with King Agrippa in Acts 26 claimed that his message of the gospel to all people was this, that they should repent and turn toward God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What this means is that our whole lives from the moment we come to faith in Christ should or must give evidence of a turned around and a turn toward God bent. That's what it means. Faith without works is dead. It's a vain false faith. Good works can never earn salvation. Get that straight. Good works can never earn salvation. They only give evidence of it. R.C. Sproul also once rightly said, true faith will never manifest itself in the performance of good works of obedience. Of the works of obedience. The sad thing is, many people are deceived by a faith that does not produce ongoing, genuine, active repentance in their lives. Many people think that they can put their hand up, sign a card, say some words, maybe even get baptised and then live how they like. They honestly think that they can have one foot in one world and one foot in the other and then they lead their own spiritual life. And no, that's not how it is, folks. It's not how it is. Paul commends the, the Thessalonian believers. This is another example, illustration from Scripture. These were pagan idol worshippers and they got saved. And he wrote commending them for how their life was characterized by faith and and repentance. And he says, they turned to God from idols, listen to this, to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They were characterized by a whole new bent, a whole new lifestyle. Did they muck up? Yes. Just like we do. Do we make do we make mistakes? More than likely, yes, just like we do. Do they sin? Yes, just like we do. But there's a new nature within us that will cause us to turn toward the Lord over and over again. And this is exactly what went down in Nineveh. They heard the word of God and responded with faith and repentance. They obeyed the word of God. But look at what else faith produced. Look what else it produced here in these converted con- in these heathens. I might say, just as it did in Jonah when he was in the fish's belly. What this faith did is it triggered hope. It triggered hope. Hope in the mercy of God. Who knows? God may turn and relent from from his fierce anger and turn and from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We have that in verse 9. And folks, here comes the, the high point of the whole story. This here is the breathtaking action that should captivate every single person here. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Verse 10. That's the breathtaking action of this whole chapter. Now don't bother going down the trail of saying, oh well, okay, God's unpredictable then. He said he's going to do one thing, but then, he's, then he doesn't do it. So what is this? You know, does God change his mind? Don't bother going down that trail. Because that's not how it is or ever was with God, okay? God did not change his mind. What he did was he promised that he would destroy this evil, wicked city. You got that? He did, right? That was a condition of judgment upon that city. Just like it was on Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? Got right down to how many people was it? Five? Five people? You find five people and I will spare. So there was a condition of judgment. But now that city no longer existed. The city of Nineveh right now was a repentant city before God. The conditions of his promised judgment were repent and I'll be merciful, don't repent and you'll be judged in 40 days. Folks, God did a marvellous work of grace and mercy in that pagan city in that period. And can I reiterate again, that is the heart of God towards sinners. That is. Now what about you? What about me? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Unsaved person this morning, have you been confronted with God again? Has your soul, has your conscience been tweaked about how you stand before God? in regard to God's call repentance. Or maybe, as believers this morning, he calls you again to obey him in the Christian life. And he does that, doesn't he? Again and again. Maybe it's to be baptised. Maybe it's to do mission work or to be a better witness than you are at your home or in your workplace or whatever. He calls on you again. How are you going to respond to that? Ignore it? Be indifferent? The same principle is true. Today is the day of salvation. You see, because another opportunity, another call from God may never cross your door. Let us all obey God's word in obedient, repentant faith. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do just bow acknowledging your great grace as we have been singing and has been brought to our attention from your word right at the outset of this service. It is true that we can bring nothing and it's only to your cross that we cling because it's the death, burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ our boast is in. It's in him. And Father, you've been merciful to us and called us and so Lord, help us to respond in faith and obedience. Chase away the 
the human fear that so easily rises within us. It may be the fear of man. It may be the fear of, of what it might cost us, but cause us to see that our love response to you is to obey. Help us to have soft hearts. Break us if necessary and cause us to repent and be softened towards you. It might be contrite toward you and bring us into a place of obedience. May we in our own Christian lives and our families and our marriages flourish, not just survive, flourish in the things of the Lord. Help us to do that. We pray this the same for this church. Help us just not to survive, Lord. We want to see this church flourish as you are given glory. So, Lord, we just thank you. I thank you for each and every saint here this morning. Each and every one is a trophy of your grace and mercy. And I praise your name for that. So, Father, take us to our homes in safety. Give us a good understanding of the text and the thoughts that we have drawn from this ancient book, we pray. We give thanks in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.